So good to have you today. We're going to be in Mark's gospel again, Mark chapter 15. We've been in this book of the Bible for a couple of years and did not intend for us to come to this portion of Scripture at this time of the year. But at this time of the year, obviously, we're mindful of the the resurrection of Christ. In a couple of weeks, we'll in a special way celebrate His resurrection. So we've just been focusing on this for a couple of weeks, and we will for the next couple of weeks. And I've thoroughly enjoyed studying this and looking forward to getting into the Scripture together. Mark chapter 15. If you're able to stand, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God today. And we'll begin reading where we left off last week, verse 37. And Jesus, from the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joses, and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him. And ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now, when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And he bought, he, Joseph, bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses beheld where he was laid. You know, when we think about this time frame, this period in our minds, we think about two events. We think about the crucifixion, we think about the resurrection. But it's good to look at some things that went on between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We'll do a part of that today. Father, please bless as we study today. We are in awe of you. We're delighted to be here. We're delighting in your will today. We want you to be glorified and honored and praised. Help us as we read the scriptures not to miss something that you have for us today. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Anyone who's followed on this journey with us, especially the last few weeks, but really entire, the entirety of the Gospel of Mark, you know, you see how 
people were critical of Jesus, how they wanted to do him in. And when you look at the cross, particularly when you look at the cross, you know, you, you cannot help but be taken by the disrespect uh, that was shown to Jesus. He was mocked, he was cursed, he was ridiculed, he was beaten mercilessly, he was blasphemed. But in this passage we're looking at, there were those who believed, those who stood up for him and stood up with him, who revered him. And I'm glad that they're here today. We're going to look at them. Really, we're going to, we're going to look at the centurion. We're going to look at the women who were faithful followers of Jesus. And we're going to look at this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who stood forth to prepare for the burial of Jesus. Verse 37 tells us that when Jesus cried with a loud voice, he gave up the ghost. It was about 3 p.m., about the ninth hour thereabouts, that Jesus breathed his last breath. Just saying that is an amazing thing, that the creator of heaven and earth had died. The creator of everything that is, the one who gives life, After crying with a loud voice, he gave up the ghost. It's sad, isn't it? The sad news is that Jesus died. The good news is that in his death, he provided atonement for the sins of the whole world. What a Savior. But what would happen to the body of Jesus? That's what we're looking at today. What would happen to his body? I can imagine that his enemies hoped, believed that this was the end. And his friends feared, I believe, that this might be the end. So we see this man in verse 39 whom the Bible refers to as the centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier and a serious soldier. A centurion, which sounds like century, means that he was in command of a hundred soldiers. He wasn't just a soldier. He was a soldier in command of a hundred other soldiers. And so his job, right here in verse 30, he, was, he stood over against him, against Jesus, he's on the job. He's apparently overseeing. We don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's providing crowd control, security, whatever the case may be, but he's observing. He's observed now for all these hours the crucifixion of Jesus. Could you imagine being a bystander, an observer, a spectator as Jesus was crucified. So we see this man, a strong man, obviously a man's man, a pagan, a Gentile, not a Jew, a Gentile, a Roman soldier. But what happened impacted his life in a great way. Imagine what it had been like to watch this happen, to stand nearby, to, to hear the cries of the crowd, to see the beating of Jesus, to watch as he... As he suffered on the cross, the taunting, mocking, the torture, the earthquake, all these things. You know, most of the people around the cross were, um, they were not objective observers. They they were haters of Jesus. They, They were rejoicing that he was being crucified. This man probably wasn't a religious man, the centurion. But I think he had something going for him that they did not have. He was, had an open mind. He was objective. He, he could look at it. And he came to this conclusion, the Bible says, that verse, last part of verse 39, that he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Whatever he saw, 
whatever he heard, whatever was going through his mind and through his heart, it made an impact on him. Matthew says that at this very time, there was an earthquake. And I don't think it was just a little tremor, personally. I think it was a real earthquake. Jesus had been saying things once before, many years ago. I did a series on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And he said, Jesus said some powerful things, some profound things during those six hours that he was on the cross. But two things he said very near the end that had to be very powerful. Um, For one thing he said, he cried out. In John's gospel it's recorded, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He cried out to God and said, into your hands I'm commending my spirit just before he died. Now, we read that and, and, and maybe don't think about it like we should, but I think what Jesus was showing that centurion saying to us was he had absolute control over when he died. You know, I was thinking about the Gospel of John where Jesus said no one would take his life from him. He would lay it down himself. And when he got ready to die, he commended his spirit. He was in charge of his death. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Another thing that's recorded in another gospel is he cried, It is finished. Right at the end. It is finished. These are not just empty words. He was saying, I've completed my task. I've finished my course. The sacrifice is complete. It is finished. And to the centurion, what he was seeing, the evidence was overwhelming. And as I said earlier, we read before verse 39. Let's just look a little bit more at that verse though. It says, and when the centurion which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, cried out and then died. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What a confession. A truthful confession, an accurate confession, and I might say a bold confession for a Roman soldier to make that kind of a confession that was recorded. I hope you've made that same confession from your heart today. You hold that Jesus is the Son of God. We move from the centurion out of the women in verses 40 and uh, following. It says that there were also women looking on afar off. It names several of those women. Mary Magdalene. We remember Mary Magdalene from the Gospels. She had been delivered from seven demons. Jesus had changed her life. She owed everything to him. She owed her freedom. She owed her spiritual well-being. She owed everything to Jesus. She was there. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, it says. And then it gives us another name, Salome. Sounds like or similar to Shalom, which means peace. We don't know who she is here, but Matthew identifies her as the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You know James and John, two of the twelve. This was Mama standing there with these other women at the foot of Jesus. Um, You know, it's worth really pondering for a moment today the the loyalty of these women who love the Lord. 
who faithfully followed him. Um, everyone else, including his disciples, had fled for fear. But these women were standing there. These godly women could be seen. It says they were seen from afar. Um, I remember, I was, I was thinking about this this morning as I was going over this passage. I remember many years ago a conversation I had with a lady who was a member of the church here when I came here. And she was already, um, she wasn't as old now in my mind as I thought she was then. <laughs> That's the way our life works, you know. But she had been around a long time. And she told me this, and I verified this by looking through old church records that there were times in our church's history when basically the only people who were assembling might have been one man or two men, and most of, them were, most of the others were women. And she would say this to me, and she, was, she didn't say it in a boastful way. She just said, as a matter of fact, that if it would not have been for those faithful women, the church would not have continued to minister. I just want to say I thank God for faithful women. I'm glad for men. I'm glad for men I can fellowship with and who bear the burden of the ministry with me and that we serve together. But I'm telling you, I thank God for faithful women. My mother was a woman like that who was faithful to the Lord and to her church. The Bible tells us a little bit about them in verse 41 where it says, they followed him when he was in Galilee. Now, Galilee was not a long ways off, but it was about eight, at least 80 miles probably, depending if you're coming from Nazareth that's in Galilee or Capernaum on the northern shore of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. You'd go from Galilee down through Samaria all the way down to where Jerusalem was. We're talking Judea. We're talking about a good 80 miles. It's not like they followed him from here to Union or from here to Anaconda. Like some 80 miles away, they're following Jesus. And what are they doing? It says in verse 41, they followed him and ministered unto him. But it wasn't just these women. The latter part of verse 41 says, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. When I think about the cross of Jesus, I think about his suffering, I think about his death, I think about his sacrifice, I think about his salvation. But I've been thinking about the faithful people who were there with him. And honestly, most of them were women. Don't you thank God for that? Thank God for faithful women who love the Lord and are followers of Christ. So we have the women there in verses 41, 40 and 41. And now verse 42, Mark records about the timing of this crucifixion. It says in verse 42, And now when the even was come, remember in verse 34, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And soon after, he gave up the ghost. That was 3 p.m. So the, it, the evening is coming. What is, why, why is that significant? Because the Bible tells us there, this, was the pre, this day was the preparation for the Sabbath. The Jewish, the Jewish calendar, Jewish time, time was... A day was not like we think of a day from past midnight all the way around to 11 p.m., but their day started, started in the evening, like sunset, sundown. So about 6 p.m., the, it was, the Sabbath would begin. And so why is that important? Because 
Jesus couldn't be hanged there on the Sabbath day. This, and by the way, this was not just any Sabbath. This was the high day. This was the Sabbath having to do with the uh, Passover time. So it's going to begin soon. It's 3 p.m. plus. And by 6 p.m., Jesus needs to be buried. So they're feeling the crunch of the time there in verse 42. The even was come. It was, it was the preparation the day before the Sabbath. Now, um, we, we don't live like this, although I think we could learn from these people. The Jewish people, the Sabbath was a day of rest, a day when they couldn't do things they would normally do. They, they wouldn't travel. They wouldn't visit other people. They, it was a day of rest. They wouldn't, they wouldn't prepare meals. They'd prepare their meals on the day ahead so that they wouldn't do it on the Sabbath. My wife and I uh, have been in Jerusalem, as you know, and, and you see these preparations taking place on the day before the Sabbath. They would set out their clothes on Friday that they would wear on Sabbath. On Saturday, because Saturday was their Sabbath day, they wouldn't do that on the Sabbath day. And uh, they, all the, the cleaning, the cooking, and by the way, some of you have heard me tell this before, but my mother, she didn't believe in the Sabbath. We worshiped on, on Sunday. But my mother would do most of her preparation for meals on Saturday because she thought the Lord's Day on Sunday ought to be different than other days. I'll never forget the example she was to us of that. Now, we're not under the Sabbath. We're not under the law. We don't worship on the seventh day. We're not under those uh, Old Testament uh, restrictions as far as the Sabbath is concerned. But I'll tell you, the, the thing I take away from this is they were prepared. We ought to think about this. I mean, I, I say this sometimes to people. Sunday worship really begins on Saturday night. We ought to be thinking about it. We ought to be planning for it. We ought to be preparing for it. We ought to be ready and not just treat it like it's any other day. It's not any other day. It's a day to worship the Lord. And so the, the interesting thing about this Sabbath, and I want to mention this before we go on, is this was not the ordinary Sabbath. It's, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Passover is a part of that. And there was a, that's why John says, I'll, I'll quote it, that this Sabbath was a high day. It wasn't your typical Saturday Sabbath, it was a day of celebration having to do with the Passover. And I personally do not believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday. I know lots of people do. People get Good Friday off. But I have a hard time uh, making Friday night into Sunday morning three days and three nights. Maybe that's new math, but I... And so, and, and the reason people believe it had to be on Friday, Good Friday, is because they're assuming that the next day was Saturday, the Sabbath. But this was not the typical Sabbath. This was the Passover Sabbath. And I believe that Jesus died several days before this. We recognize that in our church and, and talk about that some. But uh, so this was, so don't mistake this as a confirmation that Jesus died on Friday. And, if it, and I'm glad John put in there that this was not their normal Sabbath. This was the Sabbath, the high day, a part of the Passover celebration. So in either case, though, it is a Sabbath. It's a day set aside not to, not to be doing things because it is the Sabbath. And, um, and so Jesus needs to be prepared for burying. So in verse 43, we're introduced to a very important figure, 
Joseph of Arimathea. If you look there, please, verse 43. And Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor. Now, when we read the word counselor, we think that he gives people advice. Maybe he's a lawyer. You need to get counsel. But this word counselor is referring to his position on the council. The council is often used for the Sanhedrin. It was the council who made the decision that Jesus should be crucified because of blasphemy. And the high priest was over the council. And so it says here that uh, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea is going to go in and boldly ask for the body of Jesus. The, the place he's from, we're not sure where that was, Arimathea. But Luke said it was a city of the Jews. So he knew it was a Jewish city and would be because he was a member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, Luke gives us a very important detail about Joseph of Arimathea. And I want to quote, it says, The same, talking about Joseph, Joseph had not consented to the council indeed of them. He was on the Sanhedrin, but he didn't vote along with them to crucify Jesus. Maybe he didn't show up. It doesn't tell us any of that. Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe they just operated with a core. Maybe he wasn't invited because maybe they knew who he was. But he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he did not vote to convict Jesus. Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. Mark says he was an honorable counselor. Matthew said he was a rich man, and he was a disciple. Now, don't miss this. John said this of Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So this Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple. He believed in Jesus, but he didn't bold, he didn't stand publicly for him. But now we see another side of him. It's very clear. He goes in to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and he craved the body of Jesus. Now, you, you, for us, this is hard to imagine. It's hard for me to picture this. That a person with the, with the uh, recognition, the name recognition that Jesus had, that no one would be there, no family member, nobody would be there to provide for his burial. But in reality, that's the case. And every bit of research that I've done about this subject tells me that if no one claimed the body of an executed criminal, that body would be disposed of by the Romans. They may be put in a, like a community grave, in a common grave, but if not, they'd just be thrown in a rubbish pile. And it was very common to leave people hanging on the cross for days after they died, just let the birds peck on their skin and predators come, because they were, they were looked at with great disdain. They'd been crucified. But Joseph of Arimathea would not let that happen. This was a bold move. I'm glad that the Bible uses that word in verse 43. He went in boldly, because we can imagine what boldness it would take. To take the body of Jesus from the cross and give him a proper burial. Just to, for anybody to identify with Jesus 
themselves. That would be an opportunity for people to look at them because this was a criminal, they said. But especially a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling government of the Jewish people in that time for him to go and take the body of Jesus. But he did. He claimed the body of Jesus because no one else did. Think about this. No disciple, none of the 12 that spent 11 now, Judas is gone. None of the 11 that spent three and a half years with him, none of them said, oh, let me, let me do something to bury him. The family of Jesus, think about his own relatives. By the way, the family of Jesus would include the family of John the Baptist. They were related None of the family, not one family member said, I'll take care of this. We'll find a place to bury him. What about all the thousands of people, the thousands of people that he'd helped? The people he'd healed, the multitudes he had fed, the lives he had salvaged, none of those people, not one of them. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. But who, who steps forward a secret disciple a secret disciple that no one even knew for the most part, at least most didn't know, that he was a a follower. He he steps forth and begged for the body of Jesus. The Bible there says craved. Who could have predicted it? Think about it. A man of the Sanhedrin, the voting body who condemned him to death, steps forward to bury the body of Jesus. Two things about this stand out to me. Number one, God always comes through to make sure His will is performed. Thank God for that. I mean, the disciples weren't there, the multitudes weren't there, the family wasn't there, but God had someone there. But there's another thing that I hope you'll just bear with me for a moment as I emphasize. And that is that a person who had been afraid to take a stand a person who had been a secret disciple would step forward and boldly take a stand for Jesus and I say that because you and I never know what might be going on in somebody's heart you know there may be someone here today that you're not accustomed to boldly standing up for Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you might not come out of the shadows one of these days and take the stand that he deserves. Wouldn't it be something if there was a Joseph of Arimathea here today? Maybe you believe, but you let things stand in the way. Joseph was a rich man. His riches might have hindered him. He was also a religious man. He was a man of prominence, a man of position. Sometimes that keeps people. If I really got bold in my faith about Jesus, it may cost me something. I may lose my, my respect. But something happened on this day that caused this man to come out and say, I want the body of Jesus. Maybe just what he saw. Maybe what he experienced. Maybe, maybe he felt the need, the shame. Wouldn't it be a shame? Think about it. Wouldn't it be a shame for Jesus just to be hanging there? As far as we know, if Joseph wouldn't have stepped up, nobody would have given Jesus a proper burial. And so you could be sitting here today thinking, there's nothing of importance that I could ever do. I want to tell you, 
God has a job for you. It's interesting. Joseph was never mentioned before this and will never be mentioned after this. But what he did shines like a beacon to me. So he goes to Pilate and he begs the body of Jesus. If you look with me now in verse 44, the Bible says, And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. Pilate would be surprised if Jesus were dead. He hadn't been on the cross that long. Now, you and I wouldn't have any way of knowing this, but a cru- Roman crucifixion could tap- typically take days for a person to die. Even after they were scourged, maybe 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, maybe even three days. And so Pilate needed to make sure he was dead. Now, this is so important because, you know, the critics, the skeptics, want to act like, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just really was asleep, a sound sleep, and he just came back with it. But Jesus was dead. These people knew what dead was. This centurion knew, and so the, so the uh, Pilate is asking the centurion if he had really been any while dead in verse 44. Um, Would you mark your place right here because we're going to come back to this. But I want to go for just a moment to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, uh, we want to just read some things that John recorded about this particular time. John chapter 19 and verse 33. Now let's start at verse 31. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day, notice this, was an high day. It wasn't a regular Sabbath. It was a special Sabbath associated with the Passover. The Jews themselves, verse 31 says, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. These Jews, so devout Jews, so religious people, people of great character, they didn't want this scum hanging on the cross on the Sabbath day. So they asked that someone would take a a baseball bat or a sledge or something and just crush their legs, just cut their leg, break the femur so that they would not be able to hold themselves up so they would just suffer and die quickly. These are religious people, aren't they something? Very tender-hearted people. And so verse 32 says, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. These two men on either side of Jesus were still alive. They broke their legs so that they would quickly die. Verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers whom with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, And he knoweth that he saith true that you might believe. John saying this. 
We know this is true. This actually happened. We saw it. We witnessed this. He was, he, he was already dead, but the soldiers, just to make sure he was dead, thrust a spear into his side. Verse 36, For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, this from Zechariah, They shall look on him whom they pierced. You know, God didn't make these things happen. God knew they were going to happen, and God predicted them, and the prophets wrote about them. My wife and I were reading this week in the book of Numbers, chapter 9, I believe, where it was talking about the Passover, and it said that a bone, not a bone of them would be broken. The lamb couldn't have any broken limbs. Jesus was that lamb. And so when they came to break his legs... He was already dead. They knew he was dead, but just to make sure he was dead, they thrust that spear into his side. While we're here in the book of uh, John, I want to read a few other verses, beginning in verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, Besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury now in, that, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man laid. Therefore laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. I wanted to read that because it gives us another name that helped Joseph in the burial of Jesus. A man that we're familiar with from John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, John 3 says, a ruler of the Jews. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He and, he and Joseph Arimathea both served on the Sanhedrin. Both of them were followers of Jesus eventually. Imagine this part of it, and I just want to kind of emphasize this before we conclude. What it must have been like for them. The Bible makes it very clear here in John's Gospel that they, either Joseph by himself, or Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus down from the cross. Something to visualize, something to think about. Taking Jesus off of that cross, pulling his hands over the nails that held him there, pulling, pulling his feet through the nails, the stakes that kept him there, holding the cross, cradling this pulverized, lifeless body of Jesus Christ. And they took him, and back in Mark's gospel, Mark says in verse 46 that they took this fine linen, wrapped him in the, in the linen, laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock. That's an important detail. Hewn out of a rock. You know, I'm I was studying, thinking about this. I was thinking about my wife's cousin some years ago. She had a cousin that loved the Lord and passed away. Lady, and this 
and her husband, I guess, brother, and other family members dug, hand dug her grave. I always think about that when I think about this. But this wasn't, and by the way, there's something kind of personal in, about that, isn't there? Just pain, and painful to dig a grave for a loved one. But this wasn't just dug out of the ground. This was hewn out of a rock. Chiseled out of the cave of a rock. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man. And he could not have, he could not have had Jesus in mind when he bought this burial ground in this garden. He couldn't have known that. It was, his, it was for him and his family. He was wealthy. Dug this burial place out of a, out of a stone. But he didn't keep it for them. He gave it to Jesus. And then the Bible says that they rolled a stone in verse 46. They rolled a stone into the door of the sepulcher. That's very common. They wouldn't just leave the opening, the cave or the grave site open. They, they would roll this stone, typically a stone maybe four to six feet, um, chiseled out of the rock, and they would put that up there for security. And last verse, verse 47. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. They followed Jesus all the way to the burial site, all the way to the place that he would be buried. Now, I just want to re just review quickly and mention these three characters or groups of people. First of all, the centurion. The centurion was convinced by the cross that Jesus was the Savior. By the way, it's the message of the cross that convinces all of us who Jesus is. And I never want to take it for granted that everyone here knows the Lord. I'm telling you, this, this, this is not some fairy tale. This is reality. This really happened. Jesus went through all that, and he went through it for you. That you could know him, that you could be born again, that you could go to heaven when you die. We look at that sometimes like it's sort of a clean, polished, pain-free trip to heaven, but it wasn't anything like that. It was a horrible event. He did it for you. He did it for you. And then we have these women, the servants of Christ, who followed him with devotion, without recognition, but they loved the Lord. May that be a pattern, a reminder for all of us to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And then these two men who step forward to bury Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus. You know, I thank God for these men. I mean, I'm glad for what they did, but don't miss this point. They shouldn't have been secret disciples up to this time. I mean, God never calls any of us to be secret disciples, Right? But maybe, you're, maybe that's where you are. I don't know what's in your mind. Maybe, that's where, maybe you're thinking, I really, I really believe in Jesus. I just haven't really confessed Him. Maybe, maybe this will be a motivation to you to step up and be a soldier of Jesus Christ. No one forced Joseph to come forward. Nobody made him. Read it. Nobody made him. He's, he was compelled. Maybe a sense of duty. Maybe a... Maybe it's a sense of if he really knew the Lord, he must have really knew the Lord. He said he was a disciple. Maybe, maybe just compelled by shame. I've got to, he's gone. I've got to do what I can do. 
But I had this other thought about this. What if Joseph hadn't stepped forward? You know, it's very possible if Joseph hadn't stepped forward, Nicodemus may not have stepped forward. It was after Nicodemus went to Pilate, begged the body of Jesus, that that after Joseph went to Pilate, that Nicodemus stepped forward. And you know what? I think it's that way sometimes in our lives. Sometimes when you, you make a stand, it'll be easier for somebody else to take a stand. When you say, I'm going to, be, I'm going to quit being a, a, a Christian who lives in the shadows, I'm going to start being a witness and testifying and telling others about Christ. You know what? Other people might follow suit, start doing the same thing. To me, there's a lot of, there's a lot of drama, obvious drama in the crucifixion of Christ. There's a lot of drama in the resurrection of Christ, but there's a lot of drama packed right here too. True followers. A centurion who said, truly, this is the Son of God. Men who came, who were, who were, whose religious party, if I could use that, was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, said, we'll take him, we'll take care of him, we'll bury him. Women who traveled a great distance who would never leave his side, never would leave his side. Even when he was taken to the grave, they watched as they put him in that sepulcher. And they wanted, it doesn't tell us here, but in one of the other Gospels, it said they were going home, and before the Sabbath, they were going to prepare spices that they could come and bring them to put on Jesus. So I hope today, once again, as we look at the cross, our minds, our hearts, would be drawn to what Jesus has done for us. And I hope today that if you're not saved, if you've never personally received Christ, that today would be the day you'd say, That's, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of postponing this. I want to be right with God. I want to know the Lord. Today would be a great day to get saved. And I hope today, if you see in yourself this tendency, maybe it's because of personality, maybe it's because of any number of things that you don't really boldly identify with Christ, that today you say, you know, I'm wasting my life by not, by not being a true follower of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Thank you for being so attentive this morning to God's Word. With our heads bowed today and our eyes closed. What has the Word of God said to you? About yourself. About your spiritual life. Your spiritual journey. Our Father, as we pray today, we thank you for the words recorded in this last part of Mark's 15th chapter. We thank you for the graphic information we have about the death of our Savior. We thank you for the centurion who stood there, stood guard, would be the one to 
acknowledge with certainty that Jesus had died. We thank you for his confession. Truly, this is the Son of God. We thank you for the faithfulness of the women who loved you and loved our Lord, especially Mary Magdalene, who had been redeemed from a life of great sin. We thank you for men like Joseph and Nicodemus who were willing to endure the shame, the reproach of identifying with Christ. God, help us today to evaluate our own life, our walk, our journey, our testimony.